Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Three, two, one. But I'm working out. I love to listen to your podcast. Whenever you say something... Other people react to it. Taking my breath away, Aaron. Fern Lundquist joins me. Hall of Famer Jim Calhoun. NASCAR icon Dale Earnhardt Jr. Kirk Herbstreet is on the phone. Here we go. Welcome in, everybody. Episode 383 of the podcast. It is Sweeping America, the Aerator Sports Podcast. It is Monday, April 26th. And if I have a little bit of a different tone to lead this show, it is because today is the first episode that I've recorded since the passing of Terrence Clark. And I know it happened four or five days ago. I know most everybody else in kind of the college basketball space has weighed in. But this is the first time that I've really talked about this. And, 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 and what the, the way I want to do this episode is very simple. I'm going to lead this show here in a minute talking a little bit about the Terrence Clark news. Um, just my experiences with Terrence. Got a chance to interview him once, and it was just uh, such a breath of fresh air and just talk about who he was, what he meant to the basketball community, why people are so torn up. Again, I know most people have paid their respects, but I thought it was appropriate to lead this show with that. After that, we'll take a quick break, get to a little bit of a normal show, fun show, a lot of really good topics as uh, as the college football playoff. There's talk that it may actually expand and maybe a little bit faster than we were expecting. So if you want college football playoff expansion, we'll talk about that. We'll talk about Kim Mulkey. Uh, the Baylor, legendary Baylor women's coach leaving for LSU. I think this is legitimately one of the five best hires in any sport in college sports in my lifetime. Stunning news. We'll get into that. And then a really fun interview. Andy Enfield, the head coach of USC. Uh, they're coming off the Elite Eight appearance, and I think you'll be blown away by what that program had to go through this year with COVID and all the different variables that went into the NCAA tournament. He was the first coach I think I've had since uh, since the tournament ended. We talk a lot about the bubble, what it was like, all that kind of stuff. Really fun interview with Andy Enfield. And I promise, you know, we, we will get to a little bit of a normal show here momentarily. But I do want to lead, and I do want to start with Terrence Clark. Um, Terrence Clark, 19 years old, as I mentioned, former Kentucky Wildcat, passed away late Thursday, tragic car accident here in Los Angeles. He was, of course, out here training for the NBA draft. And uh, yeah, so a little bit of background. And basically what I can tell you is my personal experience was no different than the rest of you guys. Um, you know, I think it was about, what, 7.30, 8 o'clock Eastern. I'm at home cooking dinner. Um, you know, kind of have the TV on in the background. Ironically, there was the volleyball semifinals. Kentucky was playing Washington, I believe. Kind of had that on in the background. And you kind of start to see a little bit of weird chatter on Twitter about something really bad has happened, something really bad. Um, you know, Justin Rowland, who covers the Kentucky Wildcats for Rivals, put out kind of a cryptic tweet. Jake Weingarten kind of put out a cryptic tweet, the great recruiting writer. I kind of looked in his mentions, and it said something about Terrence Clark having a car accident. And I think my initial reaction was like all of yours. I, I was no different than the rest of you in that moment, right? You just hope that it's not true. You hope that what you're reading is inaccurate. You hope that it's one of these fake Twitter news stories that isn't true and has no basis and is totally fabricated. But as time went on, it became more and more apparent that there might be something to this. You know, there, the, it was one of those deals where if there was any way to, uh, to, to knock down the report, somebody would have come out and said it, whether it was Terrence himself, a family member, Rich Paul, his agent. But as time goes on, you start to realize that there might be something to this. And so I saw some, some people in the basketball community uh, tweeting about it, people that would be in the know. I, like everybody else, was kind of just working the phones, anybody that I knew. 
And I talked to somebody that said, yeah, man, it's, 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 it's true. Um, and obviously it took my breath away like the rest of you guys. Shortly thereafter, you know, Adrian Wojnarowski officially put out the tweet, Terrence Clark has passed away at 19 years old. Um, there's really nothing for me to say outside of, uh, you know, the obvious. But, but first of all, let me start by saying this. I hope you guys understand just so it's abundantly clear. Yes, if you listen to this podcast regularly, there were moments in time throughout the year, throughout the college basketball season, I was, I was critical of Terrence Clark. I was critical of, of some of the things that happened. Um, you know, there were reports about how injured he actually was. John Calipari kind of had a vague comment in passing about his injury at Kentucky. But I hope you guys can differentiate me being critical of an athlete uh, in, in real time during a season and separate that from, of course, what happened on, on Thursday, which is nothing short of a tragedy. Anytime you lose somebody at any age, it's always sad. But when you lose somebody that's 19 years old, that has his whole future ahead of him, that clearly had just an insane amount of talent like Terrence Clark did, it's just tragic. It's just tragic. The fact that he was just a few months away from reaching his dream, the fact that he was a few months away from playing in the NBA, I know it didn't work out at Kentucky. I know it wasn't perfect. I know there were hiccups along the way. I know him and John Calipari butted heads at times, but John Calipari talked a lot about it after his passing is how emotional, how passionate, how they, they, they hugged together, they cried together, all that stuff. And so it's always sad to, to, to lose anybody, but especially a young person and especially a young person in this situation who was, of course, just months away from fulfilling a childhood dream to play in the NBA. Uh, beyond that, you know, all I would really say is that obviously over the last three, four, five days, you've seen a lot of outpouring about Terrence Clark, who he was, what kind of person that he was, that he was full of energy, that he was the life of the party, that he always had a smile on his face. And I can't say that I knew him or got to know him or knew who he was and his inner this and his inner that. But what I can tell you is that I had one interaction with him, one chance to interview him. And it was very much what everybody said. Uh, it was the summer of t 2019. There's an event called the Pangos All-American Camp. It's out in L.A. every summer. Best high school players in the country come out. Uh, everybody's played there. Ben Simmons, DeAndre Ayton. Um, you know, the year that I interviewed Terrence was the summer of 2019. So obviously there was no event in 2020. So it was the last one. Um, and the guys that were there, Cade Cunningham was there, Scotty Barnes, who played at Florida State, was there, Evan Mobley was there, uh, Jonathan Kaminga, I believe, was there as well, Paolo Banchero, who's the number one player in the current senior class going to Duke next year, was there. And I just remember looking over at a side court and seeing this kid, about 6'6", six, 6'7", six, six, just running and jumping, and during games was dunking between his legs, and he's laughing and he's jawing. And I was like, who is that guy? And they were like, oh, he's Terrence Clark. You better get to know that name in a hurry. And at the time, he was a member of the high school class of 2021. He eventually reclassified. But keep in mind, this is the summer of 2019. So the high school class that included, um, you know, whoever. I'm trying to think of who was even in the high school class of 2019. So it would have been James Wiseman. It would have been Tyrese Maxey. Those guys had just graduated the junior class, we all kind of got a feel for who are the good players, the Scotty Barnes, Cade Cunningham, Jalen Suggs, Evan Mobley type. But the 2021 class was just completing their sophomore year. So you really don't know who these guys are, who's good, who's not, who's on the way up. And I just remember seeing Terrence Clark on a side court like, who is that guy? Unbelievable. I mean, I, I mean I'm not kidding. Dunking between his legs in games, like catching a ball on a fast break, going up and throwing it down. Uh, great handle, great ball movement, such a quick twitch athlete. And I remember saying, and it was funny, it wasn't funny, it was ironic, when Terrence did pass, uh, I found an old graphic that I posted from this podcast that I said, when he committed to Kentucky, um, I said, there were only two guys at that event that I walked in the gym and I said, those two guys look like future NBA All-Stars. One was Cade Cunningham and one was Terrence Clark. That is how talented he was. But outside the talent, what I also vividly remember is when it became clear, like, I got I to gotta know who this guy is. This guy is a star. Um, I, I made it a mission. I wanted to interview him, track him down, talk to him. And first of all, I remember it being insanely hard to get him one-on-one -on -one because he very much was the Pied Piper, the life of the party. The second he stepped on the court, everybody flocked to him. Everybody was around him. He was making people laugh. He was making people smile. And so finally he was walking between games, going to get a cup of water, whatever he was doing. And I just remember grabbing him. 
and saying, Terrence, do you have a couple minutes? And, of course, with that big smile that he had, yeah, man, of course, whatever you need, blah, 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 this and that. And what I can tell you definitively is, you know, I'm a guy in my 30s, right? And um, sometimes you interview these high school kids, and it is like scratching uh, fingernails on the chalkboard. One-word answers, don't talk, no response, no reaction, no nothing. And with Terrence, it was like talking to like a lifelong friend. It was, um, you know, laughing, joking. I ask him a question. He gives me a great answer. I remember at the time he was saying that he, he was watching a lot of Penny Hardaway highlights. That was, of course, the summer of Penny when he signed the number one class with James Wiseman and all those guys. But, you know, he was just he just was energetic. He was sincere. He was caring. And this was just my personal opinion. Um and just that million-dollar smile, man, I'll never forget it. I'll never forget walking away like, wow, what a freaking kid. Of course, he eventually reclassifies, goes to Kentucky. And as I said, you know, it didn't work out at Kentucky the way any of us had hoped, the way that certainly he had hoped, the way that John Calipari had hoped. But it doesn't change what happened on Thursday. What Thursday is so much bigger than basketball. It has nothing to do with what happened, what didn't happen, all that stuff. And what I would say is kind of as I close this, you know, the reaction that I have seen from the basketball community is very much what I experienced in my minimal interactions with Terrence Clark. And like I said, I don't claim to know him. I don't. I, I never talked to him after that day. It's not like we had a friendship. It's not like I even interviewed him a second, third, fourth time. But what was so interesting to me is seeing everyone in the basketball community, high school coaches, AAU coaches, players, other parents, um, you know, talking about how he was so energetic, how he was always smiling, how he was the life of every party, how he had people cracking up. You know, it's funny I saw, or not funny again, but ironic, I saw Davion Mintz, the Kentucky Wildcats, say, uh, you know, we, we had such a bad season last year. It was such a disappointment for everybody. And I remember asking, Ter- like, I remember being like, Terrence, why are you so happy all the time? But that's just who he was. And you meet people like that in life. Don't take those people for granted. Don't take those people for granted that always walk in with a smile on their face because that's who Terrence Clark was. That was my experience, and it become, it became very clear in the hours that preceded or you know that followed his death that that's the guy that he was. It didn't go perfect at Kentucky. His draft stock wasn't where he wanted it, but he left a bigger legacy than that. He left a legacy of the guy that every time he walked in the room, he put a smile on people's faces. He made them feel good about himself themselves. And it was interesting because as, as as time went on, it was amazing in the 24 hours after his passing, um, I checked every Kentucky Wildcat player's Instagram page. I te- checked every high-profile player, Jalen Green, uh, Cade Cunningham, every single one of them had a picture with Terrence Clark laughing together, had a, a video. The Kentucky guys all had videos laughing with Terrence Clark in the locker room and in the dorms and all that stuff. And it's ironic to think back because Kentucky had about as bad of a year as they've ever had literally in the history of the program. And it was such a bad year to be a college basketball player, especially on a losing team. I talked about it on this podcast. I don't need to repeat it, but, you know, normally in, in a college basketball season, you have a bad year. You take a bad loss. You get to go out. You get to blow off some steam. You get to hang out with girls. You get to go to a party. You get to go to the bar, whatever. These players didn't have any of that. And I did wonder. What was it like behind the scenes at Kentucky? Were any of these guys having fun? And I can't speak to what happened and how much fun and they, uh, whatever. But every single one of those guys had a video of Terrence Clark making them laugh. They're laughing in the locker room. They're laughing in the dorms, whatever. And I think that's such a bigger legacy than basketball. Um, I think he would have been an incredible professional. I think he had as much talent as anybody in the draft and as much as any natural uh, God-given ability. But We'll obviously never know, but in many ways, the legacy that it appears as though he left, again, I do not know him, but it appears as though he left from his peers, from his loved ones, is a guy that made people laugh, that made people smile, that brightened their day, um, that made everybody feel good about themselves. And so what I would just say to kind of wrap this little segment is, one, um, you know, I'm going to do my best to, to follow Terrence Clark's lead. I know that when I wake up, I got a frown on my face and I'm ready to get to work and it's not about joking and it's not about laughing and I'm a serious person by nature, but giving somebody a smile, making somebody laugh, taking two minutes to ask somebody about their day, I don't think that's the worst thing in the world and it appears as though that is the legacy that Terrence Clark has left. And of course, the other legacy is is the stuff that we talk about all the, all the time when something like this happens, which is very simply, 
hug your loved ones, hug your parents. If you have parents, if you know, you're my age and I'm in my thirties and I'm very fortunate. Both my parents are still in great health. I got to hang out with my mom last week. Don't take those moments for granted, whether it is your parents, whether it is your children, whether it is your husband, whether it is your wife, uh, take advantage because we just never know. Uh, and Terrence Clark's passing is the latest example that this stuff goes by really fast. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm obviously just heartbroken for his family, for his mother, um, because a good one was taken from us. A good one was taken from us. A great kid, a great person, somebody that made other people feel good about themselves. And so all I will say is, uh, you know, rest in peace, Terrence Clark. Um, you know, we'll, I think it's incredible that in a short amount of time, it's clear that he impacted a lot of people and it wasn't just in basketball. So rest in peace, Terrence Clark. I'm going to take a quick break, come back, and do a little bit of a normal show. All right, everybody, I am back. And, yeah, obviously it goes without saying, very serious topic to lead the show as it should have been. That was the topic that that is most important uh, to this community, to the people that listen to this show. And it can't always be fun. We can't always be joking. We can't always be having a good time. Uh, this was obviously the the story that kind of stole headlines across college sports this weekend, but yeah, our our uh, rest in peace to Terrence Clark. Uh, thoughts and prayers are obviously with his family and his loved ones, his mother. Uh, this is just a tragic, tragic, tragic story. But there were some other things across college sports that I do want to get to. In addition to the Terrence Clark news, I should mention by the way, Andy Enfield, the head coach of USC, on the back end of this show. Really think you guys will enjoy it. So Andy Enfield, uh, USC, of course, never forget, made the Elite Eight this year. And really, that was a capstone to about a five, six-year run. I don't think people realize just how good USC has been. Um, last year, they would have made the NCAA tournament. They made the tournament in 2017 and 2016 and 2017, were the first team out in 2018. So you're basically talking about a team that was one win away from five tournaments in six years. Andy Enfield, really fun interview. I do think you'll enjoy it. I do want to get to two other topics, though from the weekend in college sports, and really both of them were just, they, they have the potential to be monumental, huge, huge, huge topics and things that are going to alter the sports as we know them, as we got a little bit on college football playoff expansion, which I'll talk about in a minute, and Kim Mulkey, three-time national champion at Baylor, now headed to LSU, but I do want to start with, as I said, the college football playoff and the possibility that we are inching closer to expansion. And this is the story that will never die, that no one will ever stop talking about. Every single year we argue about it. Every single year, I think we personally struggle to find four teams to make the playoff. But it seems as though the sentiment has gotten to the point that most fans, I believe, want eight. They want all five power conference champions to get in. They want teams from outside the power structure, so the group of five to have an opportunity to get in. And it appears as though we got our first real step because on Friday... The working group that puts together the college football playoff, which is basically the major commissioners of all the major conferences, the AD of Notre Dame, they got together and they went over, how about this, 63 different scenarios for college football playoff expansion. Didn't know there were 63 different examples. It feels pretty, 63 different ways to do it, right? Feels pretty simple. You go to six, you go to eight, maybe you go to 16. Uh, they looked at those three, and then as well as a 12-team a playoff, I'm sure a little bit more than that. Don't know how you get to 63, but it appears as though for the first time, the power brokers in college football are ready to seriously begin having the conversation about college football playoff expansion, and it's kind of crazy. I should mention, by the way, it would not be this coming season. It would not be the following season of 2022. The earliest it could be is 2023. The current TV contracts run until 2025, but it appears as though 2023 is the earliest that this college football playoff expansion could happen. We don't know what's going to happen. Nothing is imminent, but it is a conversation. It is worth talking about, and it's really interesting because I do think this year kind of changed my opinion on college football playoff expansion because I'll tell you, if you listen to this podcast, you know where I stand on college football playoff expansion. I have been one of the few voices in the media that is not in favor of it. I think at the end of the day, a playoff should determine the best team, should crown a national champion, should do its best to crown a deserving champion. And I think the college football playoff is doing what it is intended to do. As I said, if you go through the history of the college football playoff, 
I don't think you can really make the argument that we're leaving out teams that could legitimately win the national championship. I mean, you go back to this past season, if you remember, Alabama, Ohio State, Clemson, Notre Dame were the four teams. Texas A&M was number five. Guess what? Texas A&M lost by 28 points to Alabama in the regular season. I should mention, Notre Dame lost by 28 points to Clemson in the ACC championship game, so we had enough trouble getting four teams that were worthy. Now we're going to expand to eight. And so on the one hand, I'm just like, why are we expanding? There are not teams that are missing this playoff that can legitimately make the case that they deserve a shot at competing for a championship. We pretty much know who the best teams in college football are every year, frankly, before the season. Just about every year, Alabama's going to be in the mix. Clemson's going to be in the mix. Ohio State's going to be in the mix. And we're going to have two, three other teams that emerge over the course of the season. Some years it's Georgia, some years it's LSU, some years it's Notre Dame. For a year or two, though not lately, it was Michigan, Oklahoma, whatever. But in general, we kind of know that there, like, like, there are not teams that are not in the college football playoff conversation that deserve to be. And so that has always been my, sp- my stance on college football playoff expansion. Why are we going to expand it? Why do I need to see Alabama beat Coastal Carolina by 40 in the first round to, for, the, to, for them to claim the national championship? I already know they're great. I don't need to see them beat somebody else by 40. And when, Notre, when Alabama dominates Notre Dame in the opening round of the college football playoff, I don't need an extra game for them to prove they're the best. Same with the year before. If you remember, LSU played Oklahoma in the opening round of the college football playoff. LSU was up 49-14 to 14 at halftime. I didn't need to see LSU play an extra game on top of everything they did to prove that they're a worthy national champion. That's why you play the regular season. That's why you have an SEC championship game. That's why you have the two playoff games. I don't need to see them play whoever was the good power five team or group of five team that year. I already know. So that's kind of been my stance. I still don't really believe that we need college football playoff expansion, but I will tell you, That really over the last year, my opinion has flipped on this a little bit in the fact that I believe that while I don't think it is necessary for the sport, that it might be for the good of the sport to expand the playoff. And let me explain why. And the reason I I would explain is basically exactly what I just said a minute ago. We go into every single season basically knowing who the three or four best teams are. Every year it's going to be Bama, it's going to be Ohio State, it's going to be Clemson. Usually there's going to be a second SEC team that emerges, whether it is LSU, Georgia, A&M, whoever. Notre Dame will be in the mix. Oklahoma will be in the mix. And that's really it. And a bunch of those teams aren't even going to be that good in any given year. And we're basically going to get Clemson, Ohio State, Alabama, Oklahoma, three of those four teams. And then that fourth team will be a Notre Dame and LSU and whatever. So on the one hand, I'm like, we don't need to expand because of that. But on the flip side, what I would say is what is concerning if you're a college football fan in general is that those elite teams are starting to separate themselves. What is now happening is the elite high school players are sitting there saying, there are only two to three places in all of college football that I can go that if I want to win at the highest level and get to the NFL as fast as I can, I have to go to Ohio State. I have to go to Alabama. I have to go to Clemson. Anywhere else, I'm not going to compete at the highest level. It's really interesting. I'm looking at the 2021 recruiting rankings. You know how many five stars Alabama had this year? Seven. You know how many Ohio State had? Five. Nobody else had more than two. Clemson had three. Georgia had four. But really, outside of the same three or four teams, recruiting is getting the best teams are getting better not worse and I'll take it a step further Nick Saban said this during the Alabama spring game the one-time transfer rule you know what's going to help more than anybody else Ohio State and Alabama because if you're say uh, a a freshman all-american at tight end at Troy if you prove that you can play at the highest level you know who's going to go recruit you Alabama and you're not going to say no to Alabama so what my biggest concern is is that the elite teams are starting to separate themselves even further in the college football playoff structure and it's ironic because the college football playoff was supposed to be the great equalizer remember when it started oh we're going to give so much more access to so many more teams instead the opposite has happened we've gotten this super group of Ohio State Clemson Alabama and maybe one or two other teams that is separated from everybody else and I don't know if it's for the good of the 
the sport. And so when I look at the idea of college football playoff expansion, I think what it does is it opens the playoff to more teams, to a Big 12 champ every single year, to a Pac-12 champ every single year, where now the best players in the region in terms of high school, now maybe they don't have to leave that region, right? If you're a kid growing up in L.A. right now, there is no reason to go to a Pac-12 school. Because you're just like, dude, I'm not going to play in the playoff. And even if we get there somehow, we're going to get destroyed by Alabama and Ohio State because they're so much better than everybody else. So you look at these rosters. You know who Alabama's starting quarterback is going to be this year? Bryce Young. You know where he's from? Pasadena, California, where I live. DJ Uilagangale, starting uh, center for, or starting center, starting quarterback for Clemson. You know where he's from? Southern California. Ohio State's top receiver, Chris Olave. You know where he's from? San Diego. These kids are now leaving the the, the Pac-12 footprint because they're saying we don't have a chance to even make the playoff, let alone compete there. Same with the Big 12. You know who Ohio State's second best receiver is? Their best player, best receiver, Chris Olave from San Diego. Second best receiver, Garrett Wilson. Austin, Texas. Austin freaking Texas. A wide receiver from Texas in Austin went to Ohio State because he thought he had a better chance to compete for a national championship there than at Texas. Now, I'm not saying these kids still won't go to Ohio State or Alabama or Clemson or whatever, but if they know they can go to a USC, a UCLA, an Oregon, and that they're going to have a chance that one of those teams is going to get in the playoff, maybe it keeps more of them home. Maybe it, it, it sort of balances out the power. Same in the Big 12, where all the best players in Texas, they're leaving Texas to either go play for Alabama or Clemson or LSU or whoever. I'm looking at Alabama's recruiting rankings. Like I said, they had five five stars. You know where one of them was from? Texas. Number one player in the state of Texas. Offensive lineman. Went to Alabama. Number three player in the state of Texas went to Ohio State. Number five player in Alabama in Texas went to Alabama. These players are not staying in their state, in their footprint. And so I'm not saying we should feel bad for Texas or feel bad for USC, but I do think that in a way it may balance out the recruiting because of the fact that these kids do not feel like if I stay at USC, at Texas, at Texas Tech, at UCLA, at Oregon, at Washington, that I'll have a chance to compete. Maybe expanding the playoff will help. And I'll also say this as far as college football playoff expansion is concerned, is that, like, to me, the thing that has changed my opinion about expansion more than anything is if we don't expand this playoff, we're never going to have a group of five team ever make the playoff. Like, it's established at this point. Flor uh, Central Florida went undefeated, didn't have a shot. Uh, Central Florida was undefeated the second year late into the season, undefeated at the end of the regular season, didn't have a shot. This year with Cincinnati, this was the one that flipped me forever on possible playoff expansion. Cincinnati, if you remember back to this year, Cincinnati was undefeated, moving up the rankings, moving up the rankings, moving up the rankings, and then all of a sudden, they kept winning and just started falling down the rankings. And it was like, it was so obvious from the college football playoff committee that they just weren't going to consider Cincinnati and they were making stuff up. They're like, well, Cincinnati didn't play this week, so we got to drop them. Well, guess what? Ohio State didn't play this week either, and he didn't drop them. And so I'm not saying that Cincinnati would have beaten Alabama if they made the playoff. I'm not saying Coastal Carolina or BYU would have beaten Alabama if they had made the playoff. But what I am saying is these are supposedly power five, or not power five, but FBS teams. They are supposedly teams that are competing on the same level as Alabama, same level as Clemson, same level as Ohio State for the same thing. And if you can go undefeated at this level and not even get a shot at the championship, whether you would actually stand a chance against Alabama, to me, I'm sitting there saying like, man, come on now. They're putting in the same work. They're putting in the same time. They're sweating in the summer. They're in the weight room. They're in the classroom. They're going to go 12-0 and we're not even going to give them a shot. And so this year proved if, if we don't expand this playoff, these group of five teams are never even going to get a shot. And I'm not saying, like I said, that Cincinnati would have beaten Alabama. That's not what I'm saying at all. All I'm saying is that they deserve a chance. If we're going to call them FBS teams and we're saying that they're playing on the same level in theory as Alabama and Clemson, then they deserve a shot to compete for the same thing, which is a national championship. So we will see what happens with college football playoff expansion. I'm yelling and screaming. I'm back. Torres is back fired up because I'm just saying I've never been an expand the playoff guy. I don't believe that we're excluding good teams that deserve to be in the playoff. But I'm also sitting here saying, like, come on now, man. Like, 
Cincinnati's going to win every single week and you're going to drop them down the rankings instead of up the rankings? It makes no sense. I don't like it. I also think probably for the good of sport of college football, we need some change, man, because those three teams, Clemson, Ohio State, and Alabama, are just peeling away from the, the rest of the college football world. And you start seeing the best players from California going to Ohio State, going to Alabama, going to Clemson. I think expanding the playoff, giving the Pac-12, I hate to say it, basically a, a hall pass, a, 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 a spot in the playoff, even if they're probably not deserving of it, it's probably best for the good of the sport. I know we got some Alabama fans, Ohio State fans listening who probably disagree, but it appears as though playoff expansion is in the conversation. And to me, it sounds like by as early as 2023, if not 2025, we will have an expanded playoff. It remains to be seen whether it will be Six teams, eight teams, 12 teams, 16 teams. All right, there is one last topic I do want to get to, and it is a topic in a sport that, frankly, I don't talk all that much about. It's women's college basketball. And that's no disrespect to the women that play. It's no disrespect to the men and women that coach. It's no disrespect to the parents. It's no disrespect to the administrators. It's it's a great sport. I mean, I'm a UConn alum. I, I, I enjoy women's college basketball. I just don't talk about it very much on this show because, one, I don't think it's a topic that particularly interests a lot of people outside of UConn, maybe Baylor, which we'll certainly get into in a second. And, two, it's a topic I don't know all that much about. I'm going to be perfectly honest. I'm not a women's college basketball expert. Look, there's only so many hours in the day. I got to watch college basketball. I got to watch college football. I got to watch the NFL for my Fox Sports Radio show. I got to watch the NBA for my Fox Sports Radio show. So there's only so many hours in the day that I can watch stuff and women's college basketball unfortunately like major league baseball like tennis like golf uh it gets pushed to the back burner but what it doesn't mean however is that just because it sometimes gets pushed to the back burner that when something so big and so fascinating happens that i have to talk about it that i'm not going to talk about it and that's exactly what happened this weekend when kim mulkey the head coach at baylor who has won three national championships at baylor I would argue the second most successful coach of her generation behind Gino Oriema. I know Pat Summit obviously coached this sport until about 8, 10, 12 years ago. But if you're talking the last decade, outside of Gino Oriema, there is no one more successful than Kim Mulkey and the Baylor Lady Bears. Kim Mulkey over the weekend decided to leave Baylor and take the head coaching job of the LSU Lady Tigers. And let me tell you this. I don't talk women's college basketball that much, but in terms of the women's college basketball landscape, this is about as big a news as you could possibly have, and I'll take it a step further. I think this will definitively go down as one of the best hires anywhere in college sports over the last decade, so let's get into it. First of all, I, I think probably the question that you're all asking, why would Kim Mulkey leave? She's 58 years old, she's been at Baylor for 20 years, and there's a couple reasons why. First one, she is a Louisiana native. She, I, I don't believe that she was just looking to get out and she was going to take any job. She's a Louisiana native. She's kind of, in many ways, a Louisiana legend. She played at Louisiana Tech. Louisiana Tech has a storied program. She was actually part of the Louisiana Tech team that won the first ever women's NCAA tournament in 1982. Uh, she was a starter on that team, a player on that team. It's kind of crazy we didn't get a women's NCAA tournament until 1982, but she was a starter and a player on that team. She was then an assistant coach at Louisiana Tech, won another national championship as an assistant coach. And in 2000, she goes to Baylor and basically builds what was currently, as of Saturday, the second most successful program in women's college basketball behind UConn. She won five national, she won, made five Final Fours, three national championships. And how about this? The Big 12, really good women's basketball conference. They won Baylor the Big 12 regular season title every year since 2011 through this season. So basically 11 straight years from 2011 to 2021, they won it every single year. It shows how good this program is, yet she decides to leave. Part of it, I believe, is that she wants to get home to Louisiana, where she is, of course, a legend. I had also heard some people at Baylor reached out to me and kind of told me that there had been some issues, that uh, behind the scenes she was unhappy with some financial stuff, or some, some stuff to do with facilities, all that kind of stuff. And so she decides to leave, and I'm telling you this, it is seismic, it is game-changing, because you just do not see in any sport let alone a sport like women's college basketball that is so dominated at the top by two or three programs, a coach of this caliber leave, which is why, as I said a minute ago, I think you can legitimately make the case that this will go down as one of the craziest and greatest hires in college sports 
in like the last 20 years, right? Like, I'm not going to go back 100 years, and I don't know what it meant when Bear Bryant left this school for that school, but what I am telling you is in our lifetimes, I think you can legitimately make the case that this is one of the craziest and best hires that any school has made anywhere. Because think about it. I can't think of a single coach in any major sport, okay? Maybe there's somebody in, in, in fencing or women's swimming and diving, but in football, men's basketball, and women's college basketball, I can't think of a single coach that has left one college job for another after winning multiple national championships at a job. Now, you have some really good coaches that leave, but multiple national championships. It's funny, when this hire happened, the first parallel that everybody said, well, it's like Roy Williams leaving Kansas for North Carolina. And I think that's totally fair. Except here's the thing. When Roy Williams left Kansas for North Carolina, he had won zero national championships. Now, he won three at North Carolina, but zero national championships. Kim Mulkey has won three already. And so to me, this has to go down as the single best hire anywhere in college sports, at the very least, since Ohio State hired Urban Meyer. And even that is not a parallel to this because of the fact that, never forget, Ohio State didn't hire Urban Meyer away from another school. Ohio State hired Urban Meyer when he was basically unemployed. He wins two national championships at Florida, leaves over health concerns, sits out for a year, is working at ESPN. Ohio State has their issue with Jim Trestle. They go get Urban Meyer, and the rest is history. So he is the last coach that I can remember that was hired somewhere after winning multiple national championships. But even he got hired, he wasn't really working anywhere. Ohio State didn't have to go get him from somewhere else. So I think you can legitimately make the case that in terms of hiring someone from somewhere else, this is probably the best hire since Nick Saban when Alabama went to the Miami Dolphins and said, we are not leaving until we get Nick Saban. They keep offering her more money, keep offering her more money, keep offering her more money. Um, and eventually, you know, he does the press conference. No, I'm not leaving Alabama or I'm not leaving for Alabama. I'm happy at Alabama. And then, of course, he leaves at Alabama. And the rest is history. I think this is that kind of hire when it comes to women's college basketball. How could it not be three national championships? But really, there are no parallels, right? How many, how many times have you seen any coach leave a school that has won a national championship, let alone three like Kim Mulkey? As a matter of fact, the only other thing that even equates on my radar in recent years is Jimbo Fisher, who, of course, left Florida State for Texas A&M. And it's funny, and by the way, after winning a national championship. It's funny, however, one, first of all, Jimbo Fisher didn't win three, but two, what's ironic about it is that you know who LSU's AD is right now? LSU's AD is a guy named Scott Woodward, who was at Texas A&M before he went to LSU. And you know who was the guy that hired Jimbo Fisher at LSU, or at at Texas A&M? It was Scott Woodward. And so why do I bring it up? It's because I would argue that Kim Mulkey is probably the best major hire since Nick Saban at Alabama. And what I would also say is the only parallel in recent years is Jimbo Fisher leaving Florida State for Texas A&M, and the guy that hired Jimbo Fisher at Florida State, or at Texas A&M, is the guy who hired Kim Mulkey at LSU. And so what I want to say very quickly is shout out to Scott Woodward. Because Scott Woodward is the LSU AD, and I do not understand why more ADs do not operate like this guy. I've talked about it a ton. I talked about it with the North Carolina coaching job and Hubert Davis. I talked about it with the Indiana job when we got the report that they went after Brad Stevens. But I don't understand why more ADs do not operate in this manner. Go ahead, get your money together, go out and get the best candidate, or at the very least, doggedly pursue them and keep pushing them until they say yes, keep putting more money on the table until they say yes, and that's exactly what this guy did. Ultimately, at the end of the day, look, I don't really know if this guy's a good AD. I don't really know what he does behind the scenes. I don't know what he's doing on Tuesday at 2 p.m. in Baton Rouge, but what I can tell you is this guy's track record of hiring people is pretty incredible. Before he was at A&M, he was at Washington. He was the guy that got Chris Peterson to leave Boise to go to Washington. Gets to AM, hires Jimbo Fisher, hires Buzz Williams. Then he gets to LSU. His first major, major, major hire is Kim Mulkey, the second best coach of her generation. I don't get why more, more, more ADs don't do this, right? An AD is ultimately only defined by two things, really. Your, your football coach and your basketball coach. Who do you hire? Do they work out? And frankly, if we're being perfectly honest, most schools don't even really care that much about basketball if your football team's good. And so I don't understand why more ADs don't do this. I know every school can't go out and afford to or convince Jimbo Fisher to leave, but the ones that can't, because you look at the alternative, and I've talked about it before, but look at Texas A&M. Everyone said, oh, they overpaid for Jimbo Fisher, $75 million. Uh, well, what's the alternative? Being Texas, 
paying Tom Herman $25 million over the course of four years, then having to pay him a $20 million buyout, then having to pay another $30 million to get uh, Steve Sarkeesian. No, how much that costs? About the same thing it cost Jimbo Fisher. So I give Scott Woodward credit. I give LSU credit. And I'm just fascinated to see how this works out. The other thing that I think is really interesting that's worth noting, never forget, we live in the one-time transfer world now. I don't know what's going to happen with Kim Mulkey or what she's going to do or what her recruiting plan is, but Baylor made the Elite Eight, almost beat UConn, probably should have beat UConn last year, and guess what? If she wants to, she can bring her whole team with her from Baylor. I don't think everybody's going to take her up on it, but it's so fascinating to see how quickly the world has changed, but congratulations to LSU on getting one of the best coaches in the game, and this is just one of the most fascinating hires that I can ever remember uh, in recent college sports. So yeah, shout out LSU, shout out Kim Mulkey. Okay, that is it for this segment of the Air Tour Sports Podcast. I have gone on long enough. Before I get out of here, I want to remind you a couple things. First of all, Andy Enfield coming up. Really fun interview. I think you're going to enjoy it. It is wild how much USC basketball had to go through this year. Being in Southern California, I don't think people realize they were, there's a great clip. They were not even allowed to practice uh, until September. Most schools had their players back in June. USC got their players back in September, and Andy tells a great story about basically their first practice is on a tennis court, and all they can do is dribble. They're not even allowed to pass the ball by state law. So for that team to go on and eventually make a Final Four is absolutely incredible, uh, or an Elite Eight, I should say, absolutely incredible. But anyway, that is all for this segment. Andy Enfield coming up. Before we get out of here, please make sure that you're subscribed to the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast, iTunes, the Podcast Addict app, Podbean, Spotify, TuneIn Tune Radio, wherever you listen to podcasts, make sure to subscribe. Make sure to rate and review the show. Go ahead, give us a quick five stars. Let us know what you like, all that good stuff. Make sure you're following on social media, at Aaron underscore Torres on Twitter, at Aaron Torres Pod on Instagram, Aaron Torres Podcast Questions at gmail.com. I do have some more questions, so maybe we'll get to a mailbag later this week. I should mention, for those of you that want NFL draft coverage, Wednesday's show. We will do a show uh, late Wednesday. It'll drop, I guess, late Tuesday, early Wednesday. It'll be dedicated to the NFL draft. Then Thursday after the draft, we'll do a post-draft show. So lots of good draft coverage coming up if that's what you're into. But that's it for this segment. Shout out to Torrent Craig. Shout out to Rachel who hates my voice. Let's get to my interview with USC head coach Andy Enfield. think you guys will really enjoy that one. Enjoy, party people. All right, joining me via Zoom, uh, guy I've known a really long time. We were trying to do this during the season, and then the schedule started, stopped, the games added, games subtracted. But uh, like I said, Coach Enfield, I've known you a long time, man. Love talking ball with you. I appreciate you making a few minutes. Andy Enfield, USC, in case people didn't figure it out. How you doing, Coach? Doing very well. Great to be here with you, Aaron. All right, well, well, let's get into it, because uh, in many ways, uh, you guys were, at the very least, by the end of the season, the toast of the basketball world, certainly here in L.A. Uh, what is, I, I know, obviously, look, it didn't end the way that, that you guys wanted it to against Gonzaga in the Elite Eight, but uh, what has the last, I don't know, six, eight weeks been like in a situation where, you know, you guys are fighting so hard for kind of national relevancy, um, you know, I, I I, it seemed like nobody was talking about you guys except for me. I was the only one banging the drum for you guys. And then all of a sudden, you you blow out Kansas. I think it was their worst tournament loss in, in four or five decades. Uh, everyone realizes, man, this team is good. You blow out, you beat Oregon. I mean, what what has the last six, seven weeks been like as you guys obviously went further than uh, just about any USC team in the history of the program? Well, our players did a great job all season. We were 25 and 8. And we were very confident going to the NCAA tournament because we had a very good regular season. Our players really came together and played great basketball. So we were excited for them, very proud of what they accomplished. Uh, the NCAA tournament was unlike any ever, uh, probably in the history of the tournament with the, the pandemic and the isolation. We were in a hotel for 22 straight days. So our players were really focused because they didn't have anything else to do. And uh, we had a lot of fun together, even though we couldn't see family and friends. But once they hit that court, uh, they just played great basketball. Uh, obviously, in our Elite Eight game against Gonzaga, we didn't play very well in the first seven or eight minutes, and, and we're in a deep hole we couldn't get out of. But the, the rest of the tournament really played well. So it's interesting. You know, you're probably the first person I think I've really had on. I mean, I 
I had a few players on Luca Garza, whatever, but that that was in the tournament, lived that tournament for for fans. You know, we we hear about it, and oh, you know, it's life in a hotel. How bad could it be? But you know, I was talking to somebody kind of on your staff about this earlier in the springtime about I think the players had a chance to go to Top Golf at one point. Uh, and one of your assistants, it, it, he's like, I just want to get out of the hotel. I can't, I don't know how to hit a golf ball, but I just want to be out of the hotel. How mentally straining was it? I mean, you spend basically a whole season in isolation, but take us for people that heard the stories, all the stuff that happened in the bubble, but what it was really like in there, especially for a team like you that was in there for about three full weeks. Well, the first five or six days in Indianapolis, we weren't able to go outside because all the Convention center hotels are connected via the skyways, so you don't ever have to leave the hotel or go outside. So we uh, we had a chance finally on day five or six to spend 10 minutes in the sunshine and broke <laughs> off area. There's a, a fence around it, and we could we could not leave and see the public. So that was a highlight of our week. And then we obviously played our first game and fortunate enough to win and, and go on and, and play another game and win that. So once we went to the Sweet 16, uh, they opened up the baseball stadium across the street where we were able to exercise and our exercise okay. was being escorted across and walking laps around the warning track in the <laughs> infield so uh, it, it was, certainly was not uh, what we were used to but uh, the good thing was we, we kept winning so uh, our stay was extended and our players and staff did a great job all right uh this season specifically we just talked about kind of the protocols, but for, first of all, when did you realize, you know, obviously, look, everybody knows kind of Evan Mobley was always a highly rated player coming out of high school. He commits to you guys, I think, you know, beginning of his senior year. So everybody knew you had this kind of potential lottery talent, a couple nice returnees off last year's team that would have made the NCAA tournament in 2020. When did you realize like this team has a chance to be pretty good because it wasn't just the sweet 16 and the elite eight run. It was, uh, you know, you guys, I think at one point 16 and six overall, I think you finished the regular season like 22 and six. I, I can't remember all the numbers off the top of my head, but you guys were fantastic all year, probably a little bit underappreciated nationally. I mean, when did you realize like we got a chance to be a pretty good team here? Well, it was challenging Aaron, because we had a whole new roster coming off the 22 and nine season, the uh, season before we uh, lost everybody except three players. And so on went early to the draft, we had some seniors, very good players, Jonah Matthews, Nick Krosevic, and some grad transfers. So we only had three returnees and then a the pandemic hit and we had to recruit a whole new roster via the telephone and zoom. So when you say, when did we realize we, we didn't realize in the summer because we weren't allowed to see our players or work them out. So once we once we were able to get them in the gym in September, October, and start training camp, we thought we had a chance to be pretty good, but we had to learn the strengths and weaknesses of our team because we never coached a ha at least half our team. So uh, once the season started, I, I think we, we thought we could be pretty good, but we were unproven and we had no idea how these players would mesh together. And then when the game games got tight, the competition increased, how they would respond at the end of games, because you have to win a lot of close games, to have a successful season in college. And so, uh, once our league started, uh, we uh, we thought we had a chance again, and, and we ended up winning. I think eight or I think we started out eight and two in the league, and at that point we thought we were pretty good, but we had a very challenging schedule. The Pac-12 was outstanding this year, and we ended up 15 and five in the league. So I think uh, once once midway through the Pac-12 season, we thought we had a very good basketball team, especially on the defensive end. How do you know? And tell people because I I think how special was it this year? to have the run and the team and the group of guys that you did, but given the circumstance, because you just said something that I don't think most people realize is it's easy to forget now, but September, October, we were living in a different world than we are now, as far as restrictions and all that stuff. And something that I knew, but it didn't really hit me until the middle of the tournament. I believe the NCAA allowed teams back on campus, uh, basically in like June, maybe mid June or so. And if I remember correctly, you guys didn't even get your players back to campus until like September and you couldn't bring them in the gym to actually play basketball for like they were lifting weights and running sprints outside. I mean, tell people and it's nobody's fault. It's the it's the state rules, whatever. But I mean, you guys overcame a lot that I don't think a lot of people realize when you look at the fact that some teams, Big 12, SEC country, wherever it is, they were allowed to have their players back and in the gym as early as June. Yeah, it was challenging because our players wanted to be here. They were still at home and, and we wanted them to be here. But we finally were outside in early September on the tennis courts where it was 
still about 95 degrees. We had a heat wave and the air quality was poor with just the humidity. And so it was very hot in Los Angeles. Usually Los Angeles uh, cools down a little bit, but we had a heat wave and it was not fun to be on that tennis court. And everybody had their own basketball with their, their initials on that. And we could not pass the ball to each other. All the coaches had gloves and masks on. It was just surreal to be uh, trying to work out a college basketball team and they could not pass the ball to each other because of the COVID <laughs> restrictions. So how, how do you run a, even a workout, let alone a practice, uh, when they can't pass the ball to each other as players? Uh, so it was uh, uh, unlike anything we'll probably ever see again, but uh, it did prepare us. Uh, it, it made us appreciate uh, the fact that we, we were trying to have a season, and when we could get in the gym, that was a big, big week and big day for us. I, I seem to remember a lot of coaches telling me at that time, Players have never appreciated a practice more. Um, you know, last year when the season was canceled, never appreciated an in-person class more. I think it recalibrated a lot of people's thoughts on, you know, what's normal, what's difficult, what's challenging, things like that, right? Yeah, we're still in the same situation here. When we walk on campus, there's no one around. I can't wait till the fall when everybody has the vaccine and we can have a normal college campus atmosphere, just the energy and get the students back here. Fantastic. Really quick, um, you know, this past season, obviously, I think the world kind of got to see how how great your team is, how great your program is. Something you and I have talked about a lot through the years. I don't think people realize how good that you guys have been kind of on the national scale really for about five, six years now. You know, I brought this up in the middle of the season and it kind of blew some people's minds is, um, you know, you guys make the tournament in 2016, 2017. 2018, you're literally the first team left out of the NCAA tournament. You lose in the Pac-12 championship game as the number two seed. So you're literally a win away from the tournament. And then, of course, 2020, if there was an NCAA tournament, you there would you know you guys would have been in it. This is about a five, six year journey where I mean, I, I bring it up. You guys probably you were basically one game away from going to five tournaments in six years. I don't think the casual average college basketball fan realized that. Well, I think that's the lack of exposure to the Pac-12 uh, because of the times of games and just the Pac-12 conference in general. So I think this is an important year for us to uh, do well in the tournament as a league. Of course, USC, I think it meant a lot to our program because you're right, we've won 20, over 20 games five out of the last six years and had some really good players and our, our assistant coaches have just done a terrific job. Jason Hart, Chris Kaplan went with me the whole time. And, and so re- they really helped build this foundation and, and elevated the program on the national level. So we're extremely proud of our players like Jordan McLaughlin, DeAnthony Melton, Shemezi Metu, Benny Bowray, Elijah Stewart. Those guys are all in the NBA now. And, and uh, they, they won 26 games, 24 games before. And, and um, of course, this year we had 25 games a shortened season. So uh, they, they really set the tone and really elevated the program to allow us to be where we are today. What is the stat that I heard? What are you guys like the 12th most winningest program in the last six years or something like something crazy like that? I think that's among the six power conferences, yes. Not bad. How many guys do you have in the NBA right now? Because, again, I don't think people people don't think of USC as a basketball factory, but you mentioned uh, Chemezi Metu has been playing in the league for a while, De'Anthony Melton, who was with you guys, obviously Onyeka Kongwu. Um, uh, you guys got a lot of talent that has come through. And, again, I, I'll say it so you don't have to. Maybe you disagree with me, and if you do, you're allowed to say it if you want. But I, I just don't think you guys have gotten the credit in the pub that you guys deserve for what you've done the last five, six, seven years. Well, thank you. It's a really a credit to our players. Uh, Jordan McLaughlin's having a great year with the Timberwolves. Uh, Kevin Porter Jr. is with Houston. Of course, Evan Mobley is going to be a high pick here. So Evan will be our sixth NBA player the last four years. Wow. And uh, I, I think there's uh, some other guys on our team that will be there very shortly as well. So uh, that's the goal, to graduate players. We have 100% graduation rate. Very proud of that. But also give these players an opportunity to play professional basketball if they, if they so choose, and whether it's in the NBA or overseas. For people who really just got to know Evan Mobley the last four or five games of that NCAA tournament run, tell us what he's like behind the scenes. I mean, I've known him and his dad, obviously, and his brother, too, for, for since they were, you know, probably in middle school. But uh, tell us about Evan, because, I mean, you know, in interviewing him through the years, very dynamic kid, very uh, fun kid, smart kid. And, and I think, like I said, a lot of people really got to know him there over the last two or three weeks of the season. Well, Evan is just an A-plus person. He is a hard worker. He's so fun to be around. He's got a terrific personality. And he, and he just 
helps you win basketball games. He's a great teammate. He's very unselfish. He's probably the most unselfish so-called superstar we've been around because, for instance, in the Kansas game, he was our fifth leading scorer, but he had six assists. Against wow. Oregon in the Sweet 16 game, he was our fourth leading scorer, but had five assists. So when you're talking about that unselfish spirit, that really is contagious among our players. And, and Evan was our most talented offensive player. So, and he was our most unselfish. So for him to uh, improve like he did throughout the year. Uh, so he's, he's going to have just a, an outstanding professional career. His best, best basketball is ahead of him. But to, to a lot of people say, well, you have a, a higher level recruit. Well, we were picked sixth in the preseason <laughs> with Evan coming in, in, in the Pac-12. And, and just because you have, uh, a very talented freshman doesn't guarantee success at the collegiate level. So what Evan did, he he improved as an individual, helped our team improve, and he helped us win basketball games. And if you're if you have a guy only for one year, you would really hope that they help you win. And he's just a winner. So that, that's one word you can just you always be able to say about Evan Mobley. Well, I was going to say too, you know, this isn't a criticism of any player at any school, but um, you know. There's a lot of kids that do come in. They know, frankly, probably if things go as planned, they're only going to be there for one year. What does it say not only about him, about his dad, his family and all that stuff, but um, it just it doesn't I don't want to say that no kid. I mean, Jalen Suggs obviously helped Gonzaga win a lot of games, but how rare is it to have that kid that he doesn't it, it seems like he strikes me as I don't care if. If I score four points, but if I have six blocks and that's what gets us the win, I just feel like, uh, you know, in this era, it, guys like him don't come along very often, I guess I would say. Yeah, Evan is a special young man, a special player. So that unselfishness and his work ethic, if you watch him play, you can't really tell if he's excited or not. We can tell because <laughs> we know him a little better. We see him every day in practice, so we know when he gets excited. But he has a demeanor where he's – he just wants to go out and help his team win. He doesn't, you don't see the highs and lows in his facial expressions. Uh, but I'll tell you what, he, he, uh, he is just a special player. They don't come along too often. Uh, but we had another one last year on Yeka Kongwu, very similar to, to Evan, just a, a guy that came in and very unassuming. Every day of practice showed up and worked as hard as he could. And, and so those guys, uh, as big guys, really, really improved throughout the, their collegiate seasons. Kind of going back to last year, I know there's no way to know, but but how disappointing is it still? Was it then? Because you guys had a really good team last year. I, I forget the exact 22 and nine, something like that. Uh, you beat UCLA on the final day of the regular season. You were peaking, as you said, on Yeka Kongu, for people who don't know, top 10 pick Atlanta Hawks. You guys had a really good team last year. And I don't think people realize, I don't want to say that you would have made the Elite Eight, but I think you could have made a deep run. Um, and I know it goes back to kind of what we were talking about. This has been a four, five, six-year run. But really, last year, you had a chance to do something special as well. And frankly, I think the Pac-12 had a chance to do something special because UCLA, Colorado, Oregon, all these programs were good even a year ago. Yeah, the Pac-12 was outstanding last year as well. And we, uh, we were fortunate to really play well at the end of the season, be 22-9 and nine in the conference and peaking at the right time, as you just said. And so we were really confident going into the Pac-12 tournament in Vegas. And we're obviously going to be in the NCAA tournament at a pretty decent seed. So we were we thought we could win games in both tournaments. And uh, it was very devastating to our players to have the pandemic hit when it did. Obviously, they understand the significance and the magnitude of the situation. But at the same time, for, for our seniors and, and our grad students and Onyeka that never got to play in the tournament, it was really a, a difficult uh, time. Uh, but uh, that team was very good. They were very, very tough, outstanding defensively. Uh, and the difference between this year's team, this uh, our team this year, it was actually a better offensive team than last year. But last year's team was extremely tough and physical. Two kind of things that kind of are together. Why don't you think the Pac-12 gets the credit that it deserves for playing the basketball that it does? And then kind of on the flip side, how fun was it for you to to go on, you know, turn on the TV after a game. And I don't know if you were even watching TV or watching commentary, but like I said, to begin the PAC 12 was kind of the toast of the town there for about, you know, uh, uh, two, three weeks in the tournament. But why don't you think the league gets the credit it does, but then how nice was it to kind of a, for everyone to kind of see how good the basketball is in that conference in this NCAA tournament? I think it's important for the nation to see the relevance of PAC 12 basketball because the time difference really hinders the, just the uh, exposure and 
the familiarity with our league and the players that we have. Uh, we put a lot of guys in the NBA the last five, six years. Uh, I think we're second behind the ACC. If you, if you run down a list uh, of the outstanding teams and players we've had in the last six years, it's, it's, a, it's pretty impressive. So I do think, Aaron, that uh, number one, the time, if uh, like our Pac-12 championship game uh, three years ago, when we played Arizona, they had DeAndre Ayton and, and uh, Lonzo Trier and those guys. And we had Chemezi Metu, uh, Jordan McLaughlin, and our guys. And so we played it, uh, the championship game, I think, started at 9 o'clock Vegas time, which was midnight. Now, who's going to watch that? Uh, so I, I just think that you know, a, even a 7 o'clock game, here in the West Coast, that's 10 p.m. on the East Coast. And I grew up in Pennsylvania following the ACC and Big East, and I just never was able to stay up. I never watched Pac-12 basketball growing up, and uh, I probably should have, but I didn't because uh, I was usually in bed by 10 p.m. So I, I think that has a, the most to do with it, just a lack of familiarity because there are a lot of great basketball fans in the Midwest and East Coast that just don't see our, our conference play enough. Couple quick questions. First of all, uh, piggyback off that, um, you know, there's a new Pac-12 commissioner coming in, and I, I don't think it's been officially announced. I don't know if there's a favorite. If he or she reached out to you and said, "What can we do to help you guys get more exposures?" It is simple because I mean, it's easy to say play earlier games, but of course, when fans are back in the stands, you can't always play a a 2 p.m. Uh, Pacific time start time, five Eastern or whatever. I mean. I'm sure you've thought about it as you build your program, as you talk to coaches around the league, what kind of advice would you give to, to, you know, people in charge to help this league get more exposure? Because again, the basketball is good. It's just about getting more eyeballs on it and appreciation of it. Well, we have travel partners still. So we play two road games or, or teams come to Los Angeles. They'll play USC and UCLA on the same road trip. And we do the same when we go on the road. So uh, I think uh, a hybrid schedule might be a possibility where we play more afternoon games on Saturday and Sunday. We don't play a lot of Sunday games as a league, but Saturday games, even a, a seven o'clock Saturday night game is not getting exposure on the, in the East Coast like we would want. So you know, Saturday afternoon games that start at one o'clock or two o'clock or four o'clock. And I think, uh, but you probably have to do more of a hybrid schedule, which means you'd have to break up the travel partners a little bit. So I'm not an expert on the scheduling and of course the expense of travel. But I, I think there are some things that the new commissioner could look at with our, with our uh, basketball group. And so real quick, for people who don't understand, basically, you'll fly up to Oregon. You'll play Oregon, say, on a Thursday night. Bill Walton's there, all that stuff. Then you guys are basically stuck in a hotel till Saturday night, you know, 48 hours, maybe Sunday. You know, there's some Sunday games now, 72 hours later, whereas an ACC and SEC school, they'll play a road game on a Tuesday night. They'll be back on campus by Wednesday morning. I just I don't think the average fan understands it. It's kind of a grind. It's not an excuse, but it's kind of a grind the way that the Pac-12 has kind of set up their travel. Yeah, it is. It is really challenging for the student athlete because I coached at Florida State in the ACC for five years with Coach Hamilton. And like you said, Aaron, if we played a road game at Wake Forest or, or North Carolina or Duke, we would fly up the night before, play the game and fly back the same night. And we, our players would be in class the very next morning here in the Pac-12 because we have the travel partners, the, the road trips are extended. And so so there's. Class time is an issue, but also just the length you're on the road. When you're on the road five days, sometimes six days if you have to play on a Sunday, and, and there's also some Wednesday games. So uh, I know our league has, has done a, a really good job this past year playing Thursday, Saturday games to eliminate those five, six-day trips. But my family vacations in Hawaii are five days. <laughs> and, and sometimes our road trips uh, for two games in a Pac-12 are longer than my family vacations. So it does become a grind, especially for the student athletes and the coaches. But it's also difficult to win on the road when you're sitting around a hotel for two and a half days or a day and a half before the next game. So I think that's something they've thought about in the past, but I'm sure there'll be some suggestions here in the spring when the new commissioner is announced. Fantastic. Two quick questions. You've been great with your time. Thank you for it. Um, the first one, you mentioned your coaching staff and you know I've had the chance to sit in on some of your workouts. Uh, you know, Jason Hart is about as good of an assistant coach as I've seen anywhere in the country. I mean, I just I know you mentioned your staff in passing, but Chris Capco, Eric Mobley, uh, you know, like I said, I, I've sat in on some of your workouts. I've been all over the country. Jason's about as good as it gets. And obviously those other two guys are fantastic as well. Just want to give you this platform because I know even during the NCAA tournament, you know, you were talking about the role that Jason and these guys have on the on the uh, entire program as a whole. 
Well, as a head coach, you're only as good as your assistant coaches and your players, and we happen to have a terrific staff. Jason Hart's been with me eight years. He was an NBA basketball player. He's a high, high-level assistant coach. He should be a head coach. I know a lot of jobs in this area haven't opened, uh, uh, which means the teams around here are pretty good, which is a great thing. But Jason uh, is, deserves to be a head coach uh, right now. Uh, he, he's ready for it. And Chris Capco, the same thing. Uh, he's been with me a long time, and, and the, to see the development from those guys and how, how, they, how they've developed our program and elevated our program, it's been fun as a head coach to watch because they just are two of the best coaches in the country. And then Eric Mobley joined us three years ago, and he, he had been around the game and coached at different levels but never been a college coach. And now his scouts are so detailed, and he's so good with player development, and he's so he's, and they're all great recruiters because they're just good with people. And so to have a, a staff like that, I try to give them all the responsibility and, and, and they take it from there and they've all improved and, and just really great. So they're a lot of fun to be around. You spend 22 days in a hotel straight <laughs> with just your staff. Uh, you better have some great people with you or, or you, you might not want to coach any longer, but uh, I'm very, very fortunate. All right, fantastic. Last one. Um, you know, I know it's, it's April, right? Like things are going to change, but uh, I feel like your roster is mostly set for next year. You signed a transfer. I know you can't really talk about transfers, people that haven't signed letters of intent, but I'm I'm excited about that transfer. I think everyone knows what I'm talking about. And of course, obviously Isaiah Mobley, who had such a big role, he was fantastic in the NCAA tournament. He's testing the draft waters. I know we don't want to get too far ahead of yourselves, uh, too far ahead of ourselves, but I feel like you know you guys have a chance really good again next year how excited are you to get back in the gym I know you've been sort of working with them but get them back for the summer normal season everything going into 2021-2022 we feel great about our returning players they all have to make nice jumps in the offseason meaning they have to improve they have to improve their bodies get stronger or quicker and they have to improve their skill sets so we have a, do have a lot of experience to have players that just played in elite eight to come back and be the foundation of your program we have four freshmen coming in we do have a transfer as well as uh uh, we have uh, Isaiah Mobley is testing the waters, but we do lose Taj Eady, who will play professionally, and then Evan Mobley and uh, Noah Bauman is tra transferred. So we'll, we will have a new team, but 75% of the team is coming back. And I think with that stability, that experience, the big game experience that they've had, uh, we'll hopefully give them the confidence and, and the uh, desire this offseason to, to really come back as a, just a tremendous team uh, start we don't we don't have to do a lot of teaching the preseason like we did this past year and so we're excited for these guys how many workouts do you think you'll have on a tennis court next year hopefully none <laughs> we work on a tennis court it better be with a racket and a uh, sleeve of tennis balls all right andy enfield head coach usc coach incredibly i appreciate so gracious with the time uh we'll do it again soon thank you very much uh we've been talking about doing this for a while so i genuinely appreciate you making some time we'll talk soon okay Thanks, Aaron. Take care. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.